Welcome to the Man Talk Show, Training for Men, Answers for Women. Uh, I'm Connor Beaton, and joining me today is a friend of mine that I've known for quite a few years, Mr. Michael Trainer. And uh, Michael and I met a few years back at uh, while we were doing some men's work with a, a mentor of ours. And um, we've kept in touch since, and I really respect what Michael has done in the world, his personal life, his professional life. Uh, he really has accomplished some pretty incredible and wild things. So Michael is the host of the Peak Mind podcast and the creator of Peak Mind, which uh, is really for mindful living, mindset, meditation, inspiration. Um, and he's had the opportunity through Peak Mind to interview and work with and learn from some of the top spiritual teachers, thought leaders, and just leaders within our society, most notably uh, people like Wim Hof and the Dalai Lama. Um, Michael is also the co-creator of the Global Citizen and Global Citizen Festival. So today's podcast is really all about our journey, our story into uh, through adolescence and into adulthood and into our initiation into our mature years in our life, uh, repairing our relationship with our father specifically. So Michael shares a lot of personal stories uh, about being in relationship with his dad and respecting his dad and really looking up to him, but also having to go on his own journey of understanding his father and uh, all the way through to, to really taking care of his dad in the last few years of his life um, as his father uh, you know, was diagnosed with a, uh, with a clinical illness. And um, when we recorded this podcast, uh, Michael's father had passed away just a few months before. So it's very forefront. And he shares some incredible stories about his dad, some great memories, um, but also some incredible stories about his own personal journey, spiritually, emotionally, physically, uh, through uh, this initiation into mature adulthood. So this is a great conversation and uh, one for everyone. Uh, who is looking to get a little bit closer with the father or father figure in their life. So without any further delay, please welcome Michael Trainer. Thanks, man. It's an honor to be here and uh, to be with your community. And uh, it's great to see you again. Last time we were together, we we're doing some deep men's work. So it's, uh, it's nice, nice to see your face. I know. I know, man. It's, I was going to say it's been, it's been far too long, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, let's let's dive straight in as we do uh, straight into the deep end, which is the question that I ask everyone, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a, a fairly deep cut because uh, I think that's probably what would be of greatest service. Um, you know, like many people listening, I'm sure, you know, we, we all have defining moments. And the, and the question, I think, is how we choose to see those moments. And you know, without going into great narrative, my first experience, I love people and I love travel. They're two of my core passions. And, but my first experience alone and abroad was actually uh, a traumatic one. So when I was in seventh grade, I went to Spain and I was jumped by a gang and a group of men, actually, uh, about 15 guys. And so association was with traveling was with trauma. Now, I share that because what was interesting is for me, what evolved is as I was approaching uh, graduating uh, high school, I started to develop sort of a ritual behavior, 
one, which was which was deemed obsessive compulsive behavior. And I looked below the surface. And what I found was that what I was doing was ritualizing to assuage my sense of anxiety, which actually is something that men have been doing since time immemorial. I simply did not have a community or a religious sort of uh, spirituality uh, that was innate to my beingness or that's in a culture or tradition that I'd grown up in. And so I was sort of creating it on my own. And what was at the time sort of a neurotic uh, behavior to, to bring about a sense of security in an unsecure world, I decided that if you look into OCD, that what you do is you actually confront the fear. It's called exposure therapy. And so what I did was I decided that I would go as deep into my fear as possible. So I associated leaving the nest with trauma. So I decided to travel to the other side of the world, literally the opposite side of the world from where I grew up. So I grew up in Chicago. I went to Sri Lanka, a small island nation on the other side of the world. And it was a country amidst civil war. But it was the oldest living Buddhist civilization in the world. And so the paradox I found uh, fascinating. And what was definitive for me about that experience was I wound up uh, and it's it's actually quite a beautiful story. I was on the southern coast, and I love the ocean. I've always loved water. And I was there, and it was something like out of a National Geographic ad. Like this beautiful boy came out with this iron spear and this tiger octopus, and he had nothing but a pair of shorts and goggles on. And he hands me these goggles, and I speak the language. And so he invites me out to swim out, and I swim out this small island. And there I saw something, Connor, that I've never seen before in my life, and that is I saw a woman entranced, speaking a language she theoretically should not know, invoking deity she theoretically should not know about. And the only reason I knew that is because right behind me on a boat was my professor, which is one of the foremost linguists in in the country, probably one of three men that's new classical Sinhalese. And she was a Tamil woman in a a Sinhalese Buddhist temple speaking classical Sinhalese. So it'd be like you or me basically speaking ancient Greek out of nowhere. And so uh, to make a long story short, my mind was blown and I was introduced to a world where my Western concept of reality was shattered. And just after leaving that Island, I wound up meeting the man who would become my teacher. Now he was a, what they call an Ayurvedic, a Kapumathya, which is like a, what would be called an ancient sort of shaman. But what was a master of one art, like we might consider a master artist in one discipline. He was a master of about 17 different disciplines. And not because of any exalted aspect of his individuality. It wasn't anything about, you know, needing to be the best. It was because each of those artistic elements were integral to being able to hold the space necessary for this ancient transformational vehicle known as the Sanyakuma, which was an ancient exorcistic rite. See, in, in Sri Lanka, traditionally, there was no word for privacy and there's no word for possession. So you exist literally in relationship to the whole. So if one person fell out of balance, uh, as I had in my earlier years during having this traumatic experience, it was the role of the entire community to bring them back into balance. And so they would create this elaborate over the course of two weeks, this palm fraud city. And the person who had fallen into dis-ease or imbalance would sit in the middle. And from sunset to sunrise, they would ritually recreate their shared cosmological worldview. And slowly but surely, that person would be brought back into what is called the heart rhythm, the rhythm of the community. 
And so in that, in that very formative period of my life, I wound up studying with this man who was a seventh generation healer in a tradition passed down from father to son, an ancient uh, secret form of Ayurvedic shamanism. And this man graciously invited me to stu- study. He didn't have a son to study with him as if I, I were his son. And so that experience was unequivocally uh, definitive, both in my own maturation, in my own healing, and in a lot of the ideology, which is is now sort of central to the way that I look at the world. Uh, it, it, it unequivocally shifted. It was a process of individuation for me, and it unequivocally shifted the way that I view the world, and it was a deep healing. Uh, all the neuroses, shall we say, went away. And <laughs> I, I found my, my heart rhythm. And I found uh, a sense of possibility beyond any I had previously known. Yeah, very cool, man. What an ex- what an experience to have at that young of an age, and then to have the opportunity to have that type of mentorship, which I think is very rare in our culture. You know, yeah. I think that we've we've largely stripped real mentorship out of the frameworks and the systems that we have, and we get. We get little crumbs of it here and there. Right? If you play sports in North America, you'll, you'll get some mentorship, and you might have you might have some very direct guidance. But that sounds like a a pretty powerful connection. So, what you know in that in that endeavor, you know, when you're working with this individual, what were some of the lessons that you started to learn along the way? How did how did he challenge you and sort of push you? What was that process like? Without you know necessarily going into great depths about it. How did that shift you and, and what did you embark on? Well, it, it showed me a few things. I mean, I think, you know, there were sort of core principles that I would say I, I took away. And one, the first principle is the power of commitment. So we made, when, when I met him, uh, it was on my junior year abroad and we committed, we actually made a sacred vow together. And my equipment was, un, it was unequivocal, you know, like it, I, I didn't know how I was going to get back there, but I, I, it was happening. I just, I just had to live into the possibility. And so, uh, I, you know, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship. I applied for all these different uh, research grants and I'm, I'm not, this is not false modesty. I thought I totally tanked all of these applications, but I was like, I'll find a way. I mean, I didn't know how, I mean, it's not like I came from like extraordinary resources and like it was, you know, stab the figures, but long and short of it is I wound up getting a Freeman fellowship to study there. I went back my senior year while I was in Sri Lanka, I found out I actually got the Fulbright Scholarship, which was just a testament to that level of unequivocal commitment. And so I wound up spending another year uh, in, in tutelage with this, with this uh, incredible man. Uh, Bandu was his name. And what I realized was just the power, which I've used time and again, when you do make that unequivocal commitment, that like, uh, you know, burn the ships behind you uh, commitment, the road does come up to breach you. You know, you know, there's a famous quote, obviously, about, you know, sort of stepping into the arena. And for me, I think that was one of the lessons. In terms of the actual experience, you know, I think one of the things I've been extraordinarily fortunate since that time to sit in some very, very rarefied circles with some very profound indigenous elders. And one of the things that, that's always struck me, you know, you mentioned, you know, for example, especially for men in our culture a lot, you know, they say that actually research demonstrates that the single greatest uh, influence on the trajectory of a young man's life is having one positive, committed role model, right, in their life. And so, you know, my first job being a teacher, I, I 
I so respect that, uh, that, that power of that force. And so what I, what I saw in my own mentorship at that very formative stage in life was the way in which teaching proceeds through story. And what I mean by that is to say, I think, especially in our culture, so many people give prescriptions, you know, especially in our online world of, I've got the solution to your problem. Just all you got to do is pay this amount of money and, and I'll give you my formula. And not to say that, you know, those some of those folks don't have great insights or intel, but I think what I've learned from, I think, folks that truly embody and have individuated wisdom, especially elders, which unfortunately, which I saw in Sri Lanka. I mean, it was amazing, Connor, like every night before bed and every morning, my nangis, my little sisters would get down on their hands and knees and literally worship their grandparents. Hmm. And that, and the grandparents lived and there was, again, there was no word for privacy. There was no word for possession. So if you think about the way that that would codify your, the way that you see the world, there was no doors in the house, you know, like, you know, there were curtains, but it was, it was a very social oriented culture and, and, and the generations were prioritized. And so what I saw in that was that story is so powerful because in story, we find the answers ourselves. They're not mm-hmm. prescribed and, and, a, and a beautiful mentor, a beautiful teacher will, will share profound wisdom in such a way that you have to earn it, that you work for it, and you also claim it as your own. So mm. you're not appropriating someone else's knowledge, you're stepping into your own embodied wisdom. And, and I learned that, that was one of the core insights I garnered from that very formative uh, period in life. And I think one of the things that our culture, I think, desperately yearns for, and I think especially with men, you know, I think We've lost so many of those processes of individuation. We've lost those formal rites of passage where young men are brought into manhood by the, by the elders and move away from that un, unindividuated adolescence into a place of a stand for the moreness, whether that's the moreness of the purpose of protecting the village, whether that's the moreness of standing as a, as a man in commitment to family, you know, that traditionally, as you know, the warrior, right, was, it wasn't about I go out and conquer. It was about I'm willing to sacrifice myself in service to the mourners. And so I think so many young men and boys are yearning for that mourners within themselves, mm-hmm. uh, that mentorship to, to individuate them. And I, I feel like that's a bit of what I tasted. And, you know, I, I had to learn that lesson again. And that's something, as I shared with you personally, that I, you know, worked on with my own father, uh, at another in another part in life when I had a sort of a dark night of the soul, but but I think that that's one of the things I learned is is the power of ritual and community and being shepherded mm. and, and and distinctly marking chapters in one's life so that you can leave behind some of the old traumas, some of the old aspects of your former self, and clearly demarcate a new space in yourself and in your life for the man you're growing into. And I, and and that's something that I'm deeply passionate about. I know you share that passion and you know, that's some of the work that you and I have even touched on together, but I, that's something that was really instilled in me at an early age. And I think that that experience was, was formative to be in a culture where that was still a leaving, living and breathing reality was, was truly profound. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I can hear a lot of the, the rituals that come in that space, you know, that I like the demarcation of some of these chapters in our life, because I think for a lot of modern sort of like Western men, that is one of our main challenges, right? Is that there is no demarcation. You just sort yeah. of, you know, we, we have to use these societal things, right? Like 
moving out and getting into college and graduating college and then buying a house and and they're they're generally uh, they're generally surrounding an accumulatory nature, right? It's like you're accumulating more, right? You bought your first car, you bought your first house, you've got you know a girlfriend or you got married, right? Like you've got something yep. versus being of service to something. And I think you know that's that's where this this demarcation that you're talking about in terms of individuation is so important, and the ability to to be alone, right? I think it's. It's interesting. I, I remember talking to a, a friend of mine a few years ago, and he was talking about going on a on a solo trip. And I had I had sort of prompted this because I had gone off on this seven day sort of solo pilgrimage on my own and ventured off into the woods and gone camping and whatnot. And he said, "Oh, I'm gonna, I, you know, I'm gonna go do the same thing for two nights." And and he got out there, and he got out there the first night, and he was so terrified and afraid of just being by himself that he immediately turned around, got back in his car, and went back home. And he, yep. and he called me the next day and he said, I couldn't do it. And he's, you know, break, he's broke down. He's like, I, I don't know why I just couldn't do it. I didn't know how to be with myself. And it was such a, a terrifying and awakening revelation to have as a man. And, you know, at this time he was early thirties. And so, you know, I think we, in our Western culture, we, we sort of, not that we undervalue it, but we underestimate the capacity and the, the fruit and the nourishment that is, sort of housed within these experiences that you're talking about, right? So I, I'm curious for you, you know, it sounds like this was a very formative time of your life. How did it shape your perspective and interactions when you came back into sort of, you know, North American society and started interacting with the world there? Like, what, what did that look like? <laughs> because I can imagine yeah. that being sort of jarring and like, how do I fit back into this space? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, it, I mean, it took... I. I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge it took me years to integrate. I mean, you don't come back from that kind of a, a medicine journey, if you will, a two year, you know, I mean, I, I was so out of my depth and I'm so grateful that I did it. But I mean, I, I'd say this, I mean, I saw things that I cannot describe. I still, I still can't describe and, and, and they live in me in a way where it, it sort of evokes it was a true, it was a true reckoning. And so coming back to Western culture, which, obviously is exactly as you articulated, right? Where, where we are um, brought up in this notion of the exalted individual. Uh, we are, that individuality is oftentimes uh, based on a measure of success, which is around the accumulation of material wealth. It's not a be, do, have paradigm. It's a have, do, be, right? Which is totally fallacious. It's wrong, right? It's not like, oh, as soon as I have the house, I'm going to be happy. As soon as I have the hot girlfriend, I'm going to be happy. Like we know that's false. But it's the narrative that we that that we're sold into, right? Like, if only we consume enough, if only we have enough, then finally we'll be happy. But as you sort of pointed to, it's actually who we're being that dictates every aspect that unfolds in our life. And so I was really uh, indoctrin—not indoctrinated—that's not the right word—individuated into a culture where beingness and a beingness that is defined around service to the whole mm. service to the other was paramount and moved back into a culture where the individual is exalted. And I think what's interesting for our moment, for those listening, right, is we're in many ways being shown the fallacy of the exalted individual, right? Because literally something happens on the other side of the world and it can impact the livelihood of people everywhere around the world, right? Like one mm. person's breath can have impact all around the world. And so I think we live in an inherently interdependent reality. 
And that's not to say, by the way, I poo-poo. There's many aspects I love about, but, you know, freedom is one of my core values. I just bought a camper van like you. And I actually think there's deep medicine in doing that solo work, right? Like what you're talking about is a vision fast. I did the same thing. I went up to the Lost Coast when I was in a kind of my own dark night of the soul. And I sat by myself and fasted, you know, by, by the, by the ocean. And I was with myself and it is extraordinarily confronting, right? You don't have your phone, no Instagram, no distraction, you know, me, a tent and a fire and, and the waves. But what I found was in a native culture, they talk about, it takes about three days to sort of shake the, 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 shake the, the cobwebs, the civilized mind off. And what was, what's yeah. interesting is you start to tap into then this that inner knowingness, right? That that intuition, which now in our Western mind, our science is getting verified by science, right? We now see that, like, oh wow, okay, meditation that's been talked about for thousands of years, but okay, well, Harvard just showed, you know, you can decrease the size of your amygdala, increase the size and activity of your hippocampus. Okay, wow, your gut, wow, you produce more serotonin in your gut, and actually, that's your second brain, your enteric nervous system. So, right, the alignment between, you know forgive me, but our head, our heart, and our balls, like there's actually like, it's not just a narrative. It's, it's an actual process. It's being verified by science. And I think going into nature and just, and, and unplugging from all those externalities, all those external inputs, all those, forgive me, but stories, which, which may or may not be actually true to your beingness and stepping into a place where you can be in the listening with yourself to me, what what sort of a long way around with your question, I learned the value of getting lost, of the messiness of integration when I returned, but then knowing that I could return to center through paradoxically both community and mm. time time alone. I needed yeah. both. I, I needed both. I needed I needed the medicine of of being able to go within, and I needed the medicine of actual community of people that you know, Harvard's longest longitudinal study of its kind, the greatest uh, corollary to your long-term health and happiness is actually the caliber of your long-term relationships. I saw that in deep men's work when I, you know, which I've shared with you, but just for the benefit of your audience, you know, I, I moved out to California years later with my girlfriend at the time uh, without being a victim. She cheated on me, but I didn't, I didn't have any community in it. We had just moved to Oakland, California. And I started to go, you know, I was drinking all the beers. I was smoking weed. I was doing anything I could to numb myself. And my father basically saw what was going on. And he was one of the first men to go through the, the mankind project at the time was called the new warriors training. And one of the reasons I have such a powerful relationship with my dad is he actually banded together with his men's group, his integration group, and they funded a scholarship for me to go through that, that weekend. And I would say that was one of the most powerful aspects in my return. That was, that was sort of my true return home to myself because not just that weekend, which was one of the most profound weekends of my life and literally a ritual rebirth, uh, fostered by my father, who was the only father there staffing 150 plus men. So you can Mm -hmm. imagine what that meant to me, especially in that time where I felt totally alone. Yeah. I mean, to be then in a group of men where every week for the next four years, we held each other uh, through some of the darkest work that you can imagine. Uh, That was a, that was a hundred percent. I mean, a man said to me, that's when I wound up actually applying to grad school and want to move into New York to go to Columbia which, which then led to Global Citizen and a variety of things that totally changed the course of my life. But it was, he said to me, the sea change I see in you now, Michael, four years later, from where you were when you came in to this group, 
I, I can't, I've never seen such a sea change. Like you're a totally different man. And so for me, I think it's been, it's the, the transition is still evolving, but it's been, it's been, it's been demarcated by, by some really deep, deep work and, and a return again, both to center and to really held community as, as the medicine I need through those different stages. Yeah. Very cool. And how, you know, I'm curious, I mean, I have many questions. I kind of want to take this conversation in the, in the direction of, of your father and, and the relationship that you cultivated with him and how that changed, because I know that that's a, that's a powerful conversation that I want to get into. But before I move on from the space of your life, I'm just curious if you can just share you know, one, one or two more stories about that experience of having that type of mentorship and you know, like what's <laughs> I mean, a part of me almost wants to ask, like, what's the wildest thing that you saw? You know, like, what's the yeah. craziest thing you experienced? Because right? I think that oftentimes we, as men, like you're saying, we live through stories, right? We yeah. really do. I mean, I think about whether you're born in, you know, middle of nowhere, Alberta, like I was, or you grew up in, in Russia or, you know, Africa or China or wherever you grew up, our narratives and the stories that we tell really make us as human beings. And so, I'm curious if you can just share another story about that that period of time in your life that was really impactful for you. Yeah, well, I mean, in the context of Sri Lanka, I mean, I, I witnessed things. I mean, my 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 guru his his name was Bandhu, my guru Nasi, that's basically an exalted teacher. Um, you know, he he literally pacified a charging elephant using mantra. So using sound, he was able to pacify a, a charging elephant. So you know, things that like, you're just kind of, your, your mind is, is absolutely blown by. I, I witnessed, I, I've literally seen people in trance speaking, like knowing things about me that are intellectually impossible to know. Right. So, so basically I, I've witnessed a tapping into the, whether you want to call it the collective unconscious, you know, I don't know for folks who have done maybe perhaps some deep, deeply held, you know, uh, I've been fortunate. I haven't really talked about this publicly very much, but you know, on occasion, in a deeply sacred way, I, I'll participate in in some medicine experiences, and in those contexts, you know, there's a, a sense of stepping into the collective consciousness, right? A, mm-hmm. a notion of stepping into that container that is that is held, where you're stepping beyond the individual ego into into the more, what I call the moreness, into the field. Uh, and that the field is that sense of of our of, of the the moreness that exists that unites us all, right? That that we're just kind of getting glimpses of, right? Like whether it be the mycelial networks or the ways that trees actually speak to each other. You know, we're, we're, it's just like you know, not to go too far afield, but but is to say like I've experienced aspects of that through humanity and the and the relationship of humans in nature that a Western scientific reasoning mind, which I by the way, very much value, uh, can't fully explain or understand. So I, it, it just, you know, there's that notion of the great mystery. And mm-hmm. I've seen enough now to know how much I don't know and how much of a mystery we are truly living into and how beautiful that is, you know, in terms of, in terms of the possibility and how exciting it is when we confront some of the bigger questions, you know, like mortality, like, you know, the, in the stoic sense, the memento mori, living with death as an impetus for living, you know, and tradition in Sri Lanka, a monk, you know, there's, so there's, this, 
there's a village dwelling monk and the forest dwelling monk. And in the West, we often think of a monk as in this forest, forest dwelling, you know, I've renounced the world and I go off and meditate in the woods. Now, by the way, that's not easy. I can't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't romanticize that, but there's a village dwelling paradigm and that village dwelling paradigm I find fascinating. And so the village dwelling monk would, would go into the, the dukkha, the suffering, the, the city life, right? And it's kind of the bodhisattva paradigm, right? Of forsaking their own enlightenment in service to fostering the enlightenment of all other beings, all other sentient beings. And mm-hmm. so they would go into the metote or the dukkha, the suffering, and they would seek their path in the messiness of it all. And I think that to me is fascinating because I think, and, and, and ostensibly what I witnessed, because I think it's so true to where we are now, right? We're what, eight, almost 9 billion of us you know, mm-hmm. coming together in more concentrated space. And, you know, since you asked, I'll, I'll share. I mean, it's my particular belief that with challenge comes the commensurate antidote in consciousness necessary to rebalance that challenge. So mm-hmm. we are seeing extraordinary challenges in so many ways, whether it be obviously as we're recording this podcast, you see coronavirus, you see the Black Lives Matter movement, you see the, the climate change, you know, which we are technically a, mis, a mass extinction. And, but I think I, it's my belief, call me a naive optimist, but it's my particular belief. And I won't go too deep into it because I don't want to go too far afield, but I've talked about this. There's a beautiful cosmo, a mathematical cosmologist named Brian Swim who talks about this actually in a mathematical sense, but we're in such a unique band of possibility. And you see it with the hawk and the rabbit, right? In a microcosmic sense. They've evolved commensurate with the dynamic tension in their relationship, right? Mm-hmm. The hawk has become more adept, more cunning, greater eyesight as a result of the hare. And the hare has become uh, you know, more adept and more cunning in its own right to avoid the hawk. And to me, in a way that's a metaphor, I think while we confront challenges, as Ryan Holiday says, the obstacle is the way. And I, I believe if we do tune in, and the great question is whether as humans we'll be able to do that collectively in mass, but if we do tune in, I do think that there is a possibility for an awakening in our collective consciousness amidst the dukkha, amidst the, the metote, the, the suffering, such that we can foster each other's uh, great healing. Uh, mm-hmm. and I took that a little bit far, but that's part of what I saw in that, in that cultural context was a culture more oriented towards the, the whole, towards the collective acknowledging and recognizing the interdependence of all things. There's a great mm-hmm. text for those who really want to go deep in Hawaiian Buddhism called the jewel net of Indra. And it talks about that, how, how this, how this net is interwoven and within each node and it lies the seed for, for, for it ostensibly all possibility, but, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, how we are all interconnected and interdependent. And so those stories I saw in living, breathing form before me in a place where I, I stood out like a sore thumb. So I think the other value there, which I'll just mention is, you know, I'm a six foot four white guy, uh, which obviously in, in our culture has led to historical privilege. I'm not naive to. Uh, and so to go to a place where I stood out like a sore thumb and I was other, uh, and I'm not correlating that or, or saying that that's similar to anyone's experience here, but it was very valuable to be in that in the way that that helped reify my consciousness to be seen as different, to be seen as other for almost two years of my life. I mean, to go, I remember going to New Zealand for the first time and not being looked at as other or odd 
and being anonymous for the first time in over a year and how much that allowed me to then go into more of a rested state, to go into that sort of surrendered state. So anyway, there's a lot of stories there, but um, I learned so much about myself, so much about the world and so much about what I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it reminds me of, uh, I talk a lot about the value for us as men to cultivate a sense of awe and wonder in our mm. lives, you know, so true. that, that we, we love to overemphasize and over index the rational mind, which wants to put a label to everything, right. That yeah. wants to say that it knows everything that, you know, its end goal is to be able to identify and label and break it down into its smallest disseminated parts. And it takes out this sort of mystery aspect of life, right? It takes out the part that is sort of awe-inducing and wonder-invoking. And that when we have these experiences, like you're talking about, where it's just like, how is this possible? What is happening right now? It's a reminder for us to, to be in the, in the space of, of not knowing and that there's value in that, right? And that we, we sometimes, especially in Western culture, overemphasize and especially as men <laughs> overemphasize this ability to be right i think i had a guest on recently charles eisenstein and we were talking about the myth of separation and how you know it's very much predicated on this idea of of aiming for victory right and that any time any time that we are aiming to be right we're aiming for victoriousness and we miss out on just a little bit of like awe and wonder and there's so much to be revealed in that space so I love that lesson. Um, uh, can I share one thing real quick? Because you just yeah, inspired yeah, it in that spirit of awe and wonder. So there's another story, which again, I infrequently share, but it was, I, I, I had the chance to, to, to go on a journey to Australia. I was actually, I was resistant in my knowingness. It was before the second Global Citizen Festival. And I had made the films for our first festival. And one of our partners requested that I come out. And for, for context, I was one of the creators of a, a festival in New York City called Global Citizen, which is a philanthropic music festival uh, based on building a movement to end extreme poverty. And there was this wonderful partner of ours, uh, which actually was all around childlike wonder. And they mm -hmm. wanted to create a film uh, about wonder. And they had a range, which is quite, quite a special uh, opportunity, actually, for youth from Sydney to connect with Aboriginal youth from Uluru, which is the most sacred place in all of Australia. And while this would be something I would normally be elated at the opportunity, it was right before the festival and my Western kind of planning mind was like, I don't know, that sounds, sounds like uh, it might be too much to, to bite off. Anyway, long story short, I wound up going and I wound up at Uluru. And not only that, I wound up being, as, it, as is sometimes the case when we uh, accept the offer, I wound up being offered to go on men's business with an Aboriginal elder, the namesake for which is actually Uluru. So the actual familial lineage of this most sacred place in Australia on Aboriginal land. So the degree to which that is special, I don't even know if I can fully articulate. And uh, it was, you know, short version was I get picked up in an SUV and I get in the back seat and there's. Uh, the tip of a gun, like there's no even barrel of it and two kangaroo tails on the back. And I'm like, I have no idea what I just got myself into, but I guess, I, you know, I'm about to find out. So yeah. I get, I get in the back of this car. We're trucking down. It says Aboriginal only. We're trucking down this tract of land. And I mean, we must've been going hundred kilometers out. We were cruising. I, I, you know, we were flying. This guy puts on the brakes 
And he, and he goes, come here. And I go, what? And, you know, I mean, keep in mind, this is brilliant red sand and tumbleweeds. You know I mean? Like there is nothing. It's just desert. This guy, Aboriginal elder, stops, hops, picks up a, what's called a thorny devil. Google it if you haven't seen one. They're the coolest little lizards I've ever seen in my life. But it's a lizard that is entirely camouflaged. And this guy at whatever, 70, 100 kilometers an hour, saw a lizard out of the corner of his eye going that fast. Now, keep in mind, this is a culture that goes on walkabout, right? So they'll literally go with nothing into the desert for months, years at its time. And I sat with him by the fire that night, Connor, and this is going to sound out there, but I kid you not. I've always thought of a story, I think, as we do in the West, as a recounting of events, a telling. This man told stories that evoked the world around him. Hmm. He would literally say things, and I kid you not, things would start to happen, you know, in the clouds, in the desert. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. I know that sounds out there. I I fully recognize it, but (laughs) I kid you not, I got invited to make a film about about wonder. And in the process, when I surrendered uh, my rightness, my, you know, whatever, work at all the things, and actually got into the listening, I was truly shown wonder and, and heard about, you know, how the whole land was mapped through stories, which is mm-hmm. how, how there's still uncontacted people. Given the gift of, of some of the most rare access I can ever imagine to one of the, to, to the oldest living culture on the planet and, and to the wisdom of that, of that, of that fire and mm-hmm. that incredible experience. And to me, that was just best because you brought it up. I just wanted to share that with the audience. I don't yeah. share that story often, but that was a process of individuation into the great mystery that is wonder. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautiful, man. Beautiful. I love the, I love the story. I think it articulates it quite well. Um, yeah. And just drives home the point. So I want to, I don't want to get too far away from the conversation about, about, you know, repairing the relationship with dad. Um, so let's let's just go in that direction a little bit, and you know maybe just give the give us give me give the listener a little bit of context to what that journey was like. Because I think for so many men, one of the greatest challenges that young men have today is fatherless homes, and that can look you know like many different things: absentee, neglectful, um, abusive, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so there's a lot of men that are trying to heal their relationships with their father. And I think what I know about you is that you've embarked on that journey in a very deep. Uh, intentional way. So maybe just give us a little bit of context for what was your relationship like with your father, and and we'll just we'll just kind of go go into this. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, you know, I would say first off, I I want to uh, I want to honor and acknowledge that a lot of men have extraordinarily challenging relationships with their fathers, and I think a lot of that comes from certain some of the things we discussed earlier. And I'm I'm not trying to belittle the nuance or complexity. Uh, but the lack of, of a generational aspect of individuation, you know, my father grew up in a very stoic culture, you know, mm-hmm. uh, military family. My, my, my grandfather, you know, uh, never in his entire life told my father he loved him. Uh, and I remember when my dad did his uh, men's work, his men's, his men's weekend, you know, he had a breakthrough that he wanted to tell his dad. And there's so many things I could say about my dad, but you know, he, he didn't have the easiest childhood. He was severely burned when he was a young man, told he'd never walk again, uh, spent six months in a hospital 
Um, and that adversity, I think, forged uh, a really powerful character, but also, frankly, a softness. I mean, he he literally had a kindness of heart. And um, so my dad, I would say, in many ways, broke the pattern. And I'm a legacy of him breaking the pattern. And that's not to in any way uh, vilify my grandfather. That's just to say that he had grown up in a very stoic context, right, which was the cultural lineage passed down generation to generation. And I'll share a story my father told me when he when he came to actually he, he sat his dad down at a diner. I grew up in Chicago and he went to tell his dad that he he loved him and his father couldn't actually say I love you to my own father. But mm-hmm. the only way that my dad knew that the conversation had meant something to him was that he took the napkin from the table and he folded the napkin and he put it in his suit pocket. And so he noticed from his taking that napkin that that was his own stoic way of saying that that had meant something to him. Mm -hmm. And I think many men are still living in that reality because, uh, frankly, that's that's the that's the generational, the ancestral patterning that's been that's been brought down. Now, I am extraordinarily fortunate. You know, I've had my own challenges. I'm not 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 making out that I haven't had my own nuances, but with my own father because of his work, because of the work that he was committed to, and he had done 30 plus years of deep, deep men's work, he broke that pattern. And so I, he, when I was in my own dark night of the soul, as I had shared, which was part of, you know, he, 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 he worked hard. He definitely, you know, we grew up in the Midwest, you know, we, I grew up going to bears games, you know, we'd sneak peanuts in my dad, you know, puffy jackets, cold, concrete. And, but my dad, what I'll say about him is he, you know, I watched this beautiful uh, movie, The Medicine Game, two nights ago. And it's about this father who grew his four sons up and they became exceptional lacrosse players in upstate New York. And he said, the number one thing you can give your kids is time. And the one thing I'll say about my dad, and I think this is the, the, the great paradox and the great irony of our time is we're so cultivated to become providers but oftentimes that comes at the expense of spending time with kids. And my dad, I would say, identified as a provider, but he identified first as the father. And mm-hmm. so he showed up. He was at my games. He chose a profession. He, he was in finance and insurance. He chose a profession where he could show up for me. And I know a lot of people don't have that experience. I'm not saying that uh, in any way to, to make light of other people's uh, challenges. But I think what it taught me was how important it is to show up. And so when I went through one of the hardest seasons in my own life, and as I kind of referenced earlier, he showed up to staff my weekend and to symbolically and literally walk me through the shit. I mean, some of the gnarliest, most traumatic shit I had experienced in my life. And for him to be there and to hold me and to to, to have my back was you know, of the most profound experiences I've ever had. And what it taught me was the value of that showing up, you know, of that willingness to be a stand for the mourners, you know, the stand for the mourners in your family, the stand for the mourners as a man, the stand for the mourners as a father. Hmm. And, you know, Unfortunately, over the course of the last, my, my father just passed away in April, uh, April 11th of this year, about you know, a little, almost uh, three months ago. 
And I had the great fortune, even though it was during COVID, to be able to be there in the house that he had built over the last four years of his life and to be able to hold his hand and hold his heart, and, you know, to be able to shepherd him forward in a good, through a good death as he had shepherded me through a rebirth. And, but I, for 10 years previous, he had first battled cancer and then, and then dementia. So I had, I had the challenge of watching the man I loved the most on the planet slowly drift further and further from the shore. Just some of the work that I did with you, uh, Connor, when we did our deep work in, uh, in Portland. And it was probably the, one of the most, not probably, the most challenging experience of my life to, 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 to watch and witness uh, the man you love most on the planet lose his cognitive abilities. You know, I mean, he was literally a genius uh, and also just such a heart-centered man. And to watch that uh, deterioration was so challenging. But what I also saw in that, what it also taught me, because again, the obstacle is the way, or that's how I choose to see it, is the indelible aspect of a man's character. Because hmm. my dad, even, even when he couldn't remember his, he didn't have language, his beingness was still there. He would hmm. still light up at the face of a child. Children would still light up around him. Animals would still come to him. Who he was being was still magnetic, you know? Mm. He, was, he was a lighthouse. Even though he had lost sight of the shore in regards to being able to find his words. And what it showed me was so many of the things that we covet from the point of view of our identity, you know? Our achievement-oriented nature. And to be fair, he had achieved so much in life, but having confronted that existentially, I realize now that our beingness is what matters, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and the degree to which now being, you know, I'm about to turn 44 and I realized, you know, he had been in this house for 40 years. I'm entering into the back 40 of my own life, the phase in which he had built family. And for me, it was just a deep reflection that, you know, sitting at his desk, you know, right after he had passed, you know, we know this intellectually, but just knowing that none of that goes with you, right? And that really yeah. what does go with you is the, the mark that you've left on the hearts of those that you've been there for in life. Yeah. And I think the deep medicine that my dad shared with me and taught me was his own willingness to do the work, to break the patterns, and to be able to be and show up as love Hmm. and to do so perfectly imperfectly such that his legacy is and will forever more be the degree that he showed up and 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 that can never be taken away from anyone yeah that's powerful man i appreciate you sharing and you know i know it's i appreciate you being on the show and talking about it considering that you know he just passed away a couple months ago and I think one of the things that I hear in there that I think is a challenge for a lot of guys is putting the effort and the, and the consistency in maintaining or building or repairing that relationship with their father out of the fear of, of having it taken away, you know, and out of the fear of losing that connection, right? Because there's so much pain of, of not having had it in the first place, right? If, if, you know, you're a man that's listening to this right now. And it's like, oh, I love the, I love the relationship that you had with your father. I wish I had that with my dad. Mm. You know, oftentimes there's a part of us that is terrified to do the work to, 
to actually bridge the gap and build that relationship because they're, you know, they're afraid of losing it or, or not ever having it or not having their father leaning into it. And I think what I hear in the memory of your dad is someone who was willing to risk it anyway, you know, who was willing to like, you know, do the hard thing anyway, regardless. Cause I'm sure that there was times where you pushed him away, right. Where you, where you were. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, we, we're, we, we all show up in our own, you know, like, uh, expressions of, but I think exactly as you put it, right. Like he had that newest nuanced relationship with his own father. Right. Mm. And, and, and I'm sure that his, I, his father didn't show up in the way that he would have hoped. Right. You know, yeah. when I'm sure when he, you know, took him out for dinner and, and, and had the, finally had the courage to, you know, say all the things he wanted to say and tell him he loved him. He deeply yearned for his father to, for the first time in his life to say, I love you back. And he, yeah. and he went to, you know, he, he, he went to his grave never having heard those words, you know, and I, and unfortunately I think many of us, and by the way, other relationships in my own life, you know, I mean, are, are more nuanced. And, and, and so I understand that, you know, sometimes people won't necessarily respond the way that we hope for them to respond. But what I did learn and what I'm continuing to learn and what I'm hoping to use as an impetus for my own living is that what we can control is how we show up and how we uh, process that and the stand that we are in spite of the response, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's so much of what our culture engenders and, and also, frankly, you know, our, our reptilian brain, you know, like no one wants to be rejected. No one, you know, we all have amygdala oriented fears, saber tooth tiger fears. But I think, but I think there's also, uh, you know, there's a courage, even if it's, you know, doing that work spiritually or doing that mm -hmm. work, uh, you know, in a, with a band of brothers where you don't maybe have that relationship in person or, or maybe that person's past. You know, I still think there's ways to do deep work. Mm -hmm. Like I know, for example, I, I will continue to relate with my father in spirit, right? And mm -hmm. whether, you, whether you have a great relationship, whether you have a broken, quote-unquote, relationship, and even if that's irreparable, in other words, even if that person's closed off or is no longer with you, mm -hmm. it's my belief that you can still do the work to get right with that, right? To, yeah. to, to get right with that within, because ultimately the legacy then lives on how you show up for the people who are still there for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, again, it's sort of bringing it full circle, deeply personal, but again, that's where the medicine comes in as it relates to how we're connected to other people and how we break cycles and how we use these challenges to shepherd our, our, ourselves forward into new aspects of who we can be such that we show up to those that encounter us differently. Yeah. I'm curious, I, you know, I, I want to honor the, the time that we have together because we're, we're, we're coming to a close here, but I'm curious of a few things. First and foremost is what was one of the challenges that you had in, in that relationship with dad and how, how did the two of you sort of navigate through those waters? Because I think as you're talking about there, you know, many of us as men have, you know, maybe imperfect relationships. We'll just put it that way. We have imperfect relationships with our fathers and, and there's, a, there's a work on both sides. So I'm curious for you, what, what did that look like with him? And then I'll, I'll leave the second part for after. Yeah, I think, I think whenever there was a sense of uh, disconnection for whatever, whatever, whatever that may look like, the moments that I have found that were the, the healing or when we each got over that whatever barrier or roadblock 
and however that manifested. Because right when, when you're in, when you're when you're in resistance, you'll find all kinds of reasons not to show up. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, when we showed up to each other, so whether that be when I was a kid and li- and I and I and I still remember this to this day. You know, having at breakdown and like he, su- uh, summer camp. You know, literally him him taking me in his old Cadillac, 1980s Cadillac, and we got donuts and peanuts. And he took me to uh, this place, Eagle Cave, or later in life when we did, we sat by a fire to do some deep, deep work and connecting. You know, every time that we, if we ever had a breakdown, there was still an unequivocal commitment to breakthrough. I think that's, to me, the, the kind of distinction. I, I hesitate to use this word. I don't want it to be triggering for people. But I think the context for me of like a sacred relationship is a relationship with no back door. And so therefore, if you, if you get into a context where you, if you hold something as sacred, even and especially when it's at its hardest, you still have to, you still have not have, you get to show up to figure out how to navigate through those troubled or tricky waters. And I think the, the, the greatest, the greatest thing again for, for us was our unequivocal commitment to show up now, for those listening where they're like, yeah, well, easy for you to say, I think showing up can look like a variety of things, you know, I mean, showing up could look like writing a letter and, and maybe that letter isn't even replied to, you know, but like what you can control, I think is, is what you, is how you show up. You can't control how the other person shows up. So for me, I think that's, that's been the, the great, the, the great is taking the courage, which has been at the core of any rite of passage from boyhood to manhood, any, any rite of passage through masculinity from the warrior to the King, from the boy to the man, it's taking courage and, and not in the way that we exemplify it oftentimes in the West, but I think sometimes yeah. it's a soft courage. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, I think it's Brene Brown put it so eloquently that you can't have courage without vulnerability, right? Yeah. The, the two are undeniably and unequivocally connected. Yeah. Right, and that that's that's actually a part of the hero's journey. It's part of men's work, right? It's realizing that that we inherently expose ourselves, for lack of a better term, when we are embarking on being courageous and or being brave in any way, shape, or form. Yes, um, amazing, man. Well, I'm I'm gonna just leave us off with one final question here, which is, you know, I I can hear the the respect that you have for your father and. And, and the admiration, it sounds like he was a very wise man that did, did a lot of, of inner, inner work. I'm curious for you, two parts. One, what would you say are, are one or two of the greatest lessons you learned from him through him? And, and secondly, a bit of an interesting question, which is if, if, if he was here speaking to me, what would he want to impart onto the listeners? Oh, man. You know, my father, he had, a, he had a saying, which sounds simple, but he would say great work. I mean, literally, we would be, even when he lost his words and we were sitting in a, in a movie theater watching Star Wars, and he saw a, a father with his, with his beautiful daughter sitting next to us, and he got up at the end of the movie, and he, he looked at Dad with a huge smile, and he just said, great work. Hmm. And, and I think the, the legacy that he holds is is surrendering judgment. And I, I'm not there yet myself. I still got a lot of work to do in that regard. Uh, but, you know, I think we, we, I, I've built up walls uh, from 
hurts and whatnot through and, and, and judgments that keep, that keep me protected. I think he had a willingness. And again, I, I, you know, he's exalted in my eyes, but he had a willingness, you know, I'll share one last story. We, when, when he was diagnosed with dementia, he had just spent two, three years uh, battling prostate cancer. And I was building global citizen at the time. And I said, dad, you know, I'll take, I want to take you anywhere in the world you want to go. And it was my way of, of sort of giving back. And I think if there's, if there's anyone listening that has any repair to do, and by the way, it doesn't mean you have to take him to South Africa, but I'll say one of the greatest things that I feel like I've ever done was taking my dad on that trip. Now that could be a, a trip camping, you know, down the river, you know, or down the road. But for me, he, he's too humble. He would never have taken me up in the offer. So I said, stamp your passport. I'm t-, and, I, and I knew he loved nature. And I knew he loved history. So I took him to South Africa. And there we watched, uh, we went to Robben Island, to Nelson Mandela's, uh, where he was imprisoned. And, and, that, and the degree to which that impacted my father, who was such a lover of history, to see that prison cell, to hear the story of other prisoners who had been imprisoned, and to think about the legacy of forgiveness, to have not been able to bury his own son, if you think about it, which was the case with Nelson Mandela, to have been horribly mistreated, and yet to come out after 27 years at 80 years old and navigate through the trickiest waters you can imagine in the context of apartheid, what that exemplified for my father as it relates to legacy was so powerful. And the way that he showed me, and this brings it full circle in a way to the napkin, was I gifted my dad that year for Christmas, uh, Nelson Mandela's book, Long Walk to Freedom. And my dad, when he was losing his cognition through the course of his, he would read and reread that book. And slowly he highlighted the entire book. And then he re-gifted it to me for Christmas. <laughs> and for me, it was the simplest of acts, but the most powerful of symbols. And it was about the legacy of Nelson Mandela, but it was about the legacy that we shared together and showing up for each other. Mm. And even when you lose sort of the shore, lose sight of the shore, knowing that that person is there as a light, a lighthouse. And so, you know, I think my dad would say that, you know, there's a lighthouse for us all because he's never, he was never focused on himself. He was always focused on others. And I think that's, that's the piece is, is, is for those listening that you're doing great work. This, 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 this journey as as we call it uh, in this human human form is not easy for anyone and we often see all the things we're not doing and all the things we could be doing better or especially now in comparison culture with all the highlight reels in the form of social media we're besieged with you know i think what my dad would share with the audience is just man if you're listening to this show all this all the things that you've done to show up and to and all the ways that you've you've shown up as 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 the human that you are, you've done great work, and he would acknowledge you for it. And so that's what he would say. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Well, I feel like we could have gone gone in on that conversation for a while, but I really appreciate the the value and the insight and the inspiration that you shared there. And I, I feel like there's a, a lot to learn about building and cultivating that relationship. And I love the idea of surrendering judgment, you know, yeah. surrendering judgment, especially with ourselves, right? Totally. It's like you want to do great work. You got to surrender judgment. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it myself, man. Yeah, I'm, um, I got a lot of work to do. 
I'm with you on that one, man. I'm with you. Um, well, listen, Michael, this has been a, an honor and a pleasure and so good to talk to you. So such a such an honor to learn about your father and the relationship that you built with him. And um, for, so just for people that want to learn a little bit more about you and the work that you're doing, where do they go? Um, what should they check out? And uh, yeah, I'll just leave that there. Yeah. I mean, well, I wasn't actually going to share this, but I'm going to share it now. Uh, my podcast is, is just Peak Mind with Michael Trainer. But I would say if anyone wants to connect, you know, I'm just at Michael Trainer on social media. But I did start in my dad's legacy uh, a campaign with Charity Water and uh, a hundred and more than 100 percent because I think the Charity Water actually pays the any credit card fees. But 100 percent plus goes to to bring clean water to kids. We're actually going to build a well in Ethiopia. And so there's zero self-interest involved. But as a tribute to my dad, uh, I've decided to build a well in Ethiopia and I'm going to track the journey. You can literally follow the well and I'm going to I'm going to track it. So if anyone puts in John Trainer legacy in Google or hits me up, uh, I'm happy to link to that. Um, it's on, it's just John Trainer legacy on Charity Water. But uh, that that's 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 what I'm up to. I just want to go out in the world and and uh, and try to give back, whether it's through the podcast or through service work or men's work. And uh, I'm just learning a little bit every day, like 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 all of us. And I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thanks for everyone who who, t- who took their, their time to listen, because that's the greatest greatest resource we have on the planet is our limited time. So thank you, Connor, for what you're building here with this podcast. I want to honor and acknowledge you. There's so much deep work that we get to do as men and, and, and unfortunately far too few beacons, uh, as it relates to the process. So thanks for the work you're doing. Yeah, brother. Thank you. Thanks for that acknowledgement for everyone that's out there listening. Uh, we'll have the links to Michael's podcast website, uh, and the campaign for charity water in the show notes. So you can check that out, uh, depending on what platform you're listening on. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening on. And last but not least, don't forget to share this episode with one person that you know it would impact their life and support them in their journey. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off.